Hello, this is the Dialogue Box with Gwen Frey, and I'm joined today with Tom Francis. We are trying out a, a Hi. new... <laughs> Hi, Tom. Um, we're, we're trying out a, a new thing for this season. We're trying to explore using Discord's uh, stage uh, feature. So what we're going to do is we're going to record this podcast live, and uh, listeners who are in our Discord can raise their hands and ask questions live at any time. And we'll also do a Q&A at the end for, for any other questions we have. Um, but other than that, this is just the dialogue box. It's a chat between game developers about game development. So how, how have you been, Tom? I've been pretty good, thanks. Um, game's going pretty well. It's been a long road and continues to be a long road. But um, <laughs> other than that, it's, you know, the, the bar for like doing well in the pandemic is fairly low. <laughs> and we're, we're exceeding that, I think. We're, we're staying healthy and, um, and getting some work done at a worse rate than before. How about you? Has it been affecting you? Um, the pandemic? I don't think the pandemic's... <laughs> Dumb question. <laughs> yeah, like, well, yes, the pandemic has affected me. But I mean, this has been a completely different thing. I'm trying to remember, the last time we spoke, I had launched Kine. Uh, you were, you'd announced Tactical Breach Wizards. Um, mm -hmm. it, it was like a year and a half ago. It was before the pandemic, I think. Yeah. Well, yeah, it was before the pandemic. Um, yeah. It must have been... Um, not too long before because I had moved to Canada already, uh -huh. which I did, you know, about about four months before the pandemic. So, yeah, I don't think I I think Lab Rat must have been like a in your head or it maybe in private prototyping, but I don't think it's shown anything. No, I actually started Lab Rat after the pandemic started in March. Right. Um, okay. So before the pandemic started, I was thinking I I was committed to making not a puzzle game which i still am for the next game will not be a puzzle <laughs> game but like i was committed to making something that was more of a strategy game something that was more open-ended um at the time i was really inspired by into the breach and i kind of wanted to make something similar to into the breach like a tactical game and that's what remember i don't i don't think you actually played the early prototypes of that but i it was one of the reasons why i was so obsessed with what you were working on was because i was at the right. time i was looking at making like a a tactical game that was very similar to Into the Breach that was very much about um, you'd be on a grid and it was very much about repositioning enemies so that they hit each other and that sort of thing. And I remember at, at the time what I loved about uh, right. when I what was happened? like, oh, a, a bunch of things. Like mostly the, the pandemic hit, that game didn't really come together very quickly. It was really difficult being a solo developer. Like I pulled it off. Mm -hmm. I think it's almost easier to be a solo developer if you have a full-time job and you're trying to do this, like bootstrapping it at home, like that's hard. It's really hard to find motivation to work after work and stuff. But it's also, it's so, it's hard to do something alone. I don't know how to describe it. Uh, yeah, I've, I've never, none of my major games have been solo projects, but I think most of them have started solo. So Gunpoint and Heatsink have both started solo. Uh, and then I brought on um, uh, artists and, and programmers and composers later. But I have to, when I look back on it, like Gunpoint was the most efficient development I've done, which is really disturbing because it means I'm getting less and less efficient each time. But part of that was I was doing a full-time job while I was doing it. So in between every two days of work, I had five days of my other job uh, in which to kind of digest and, and just have back burner thoughts about it. And then when I came back to, to work on it again at the weekend, uh, I was pretty good at, at making sure I was working on something that actually mattered and that, um, you know, was was the right use of my time. Yeah, so in terms of like 
And Nine you hours spent about on it. it. It was very efficient. Exactly. You thought about your subconscious. Now, level with me, though. How much did you uh, flake on your actual job? <laughs> I was uh, luckily I had already been resisting promotion at PC Gamer because I didn't want to go into management. I was there to write, and I loved writing. And um, I was lucky enough that my parents had helped me buy a house, and so I wasn't being absolutely, you know, uh, destroyed by rent. So I could afford to have a really low-paying job, and that's what writing at PC Gamer was at that time, at least. And um, I can't speak to it today, but uh, the only way to, to earn a better salary was to go into being like an editor where you're managing other people and you're not doing much writing yourself. And I was lucky to be able to uh, basically resist that. Not that anyone was offering me the editorship, but um, <laughs> uh, I didn't have to chase that because uh, I was I could get by on my writer's salary. And that meant I could basically just work nine to five. Um, and before Gunpoint, I was putting in some extra hours sometimes to like, you know, you're reviewing a game and you really care about doing it well. So you put in some extra hours, uh, you know, on, on writing it in the evening or something. Um, and then once I started Gunpoint, I was like, all right, let's say goodbye to that. <laughs> I'm not doing any more unpaid overtime for my main job. I'm going to be, uh, evenings were just completely, um, relaxing time. I didn't do, never did Gunpoint stuff in the evenings. It was only over weekends. Um, and, you know, not all of my weekends forever, but, um, wow. Yeah. You are so much more disciplined than I am, to be honest. Like I've, uh, <laughs> I just generally don't keep a schedule like that. I, I just work, I work too much. I always have. And when I was on, um, I definitely did kinds in the, I definitely spent some time doing like evenings. Like I definitely didn't respect having time to decompress and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, which is definitely, I think, I don't know. It's something I've always struggled with, I think. Uh, I've never really had a very solid work-life balance. I generally just work too much and then take a month off at some point when I eventually crash. Um, uh, that's that's rough. No, I've, it's something I'm actively I'm, trying to I'm fix. Blessed. I'm blessed to not be a workaholic. Like I have an, an inbuilt resistance to working too long. Like after <laughs> once it gets to like six or seven p.m., I'm kind of like, ah, I think I'm done with this. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you are less efficient after a certain point. Like I feel it, and I'll push through it anyways. And it, I, it's a, it's like not a good thing. You know, I'm not proud of this. It's actually something I'm like actively trying to change, um, and have been for a long time. But it's, it was worse when I had. I will say when I had two jobs, I was simultaneously. I also didn't experience the thing of being more efficient on kind necessarily. I definitely was like, huh. I'm doing this for fun. This is my hobby project. I'm going to do whatever I want. <laughs> and I definitely didn't focus on um, making like, what made the most sense to make a game and finish it. That was, I, I didn't, I don't think I finished. I felt that way about it until I actually quit and was working on it full time. Then I was like, oh, it's real. I better actually make this game right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You were talking with William about how um, you once you like fixed a deadline, it was just you cut until you hit that deadline, basically. And whereas William was saying his deadline just just kept on moving further into the future because you know all of us experience that uh, what you plan to do takes way longer than than you think it will. Yeah, I, I I don't know, and I go back and forth on that. I think you guys are probably right. I think you reach a higher quality game if you're willing to do that. It's hard to know the difference between scope creep and just uh, like are you are you failing to make the hard decisions you need to make in order to ship or are you deciding to increase scope intelligently because it is a better game and it's worth it and it's hard to know that yeah. because every game is your baby and it means so much and it's like the perfect game in your head you know yeah it's very very hard to judge from the inside 
I think I, I mean, there's no doubt that if I had a publisher, you know, who's, who's setting milestone deadlines for me, that I would be, you know, making tougher calls and being pushed to, to cut things and to be more efficient in, in what it did work on. But mm. I also think really the main reason not to do that, you know, artificially for myself is not so much quality as stress. I just think I, I don't actually function that well under hard deadlines. I think it would uh, uh, affect my mental health. And um, so if I can get away with taking ages over something, then um, then I will. But of course, there's a mental health risk there too, because if you take you know uh, more than four years on something, uh, I think it starts to become all-consuming. Yeah, it, it, it becomes... How do I put it? If once a game reaches a point where it's like seven years of your life, all of a sudden you can't afford for it to just be like an okay game. Uh, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, that's that's part of the it. Goalpost moves. Yeah, and I think another thing is I personally uh, really value deadlines, not necessarily from a publisher, but there is something really powerful about being like, all right, I am showing this game at EGX, and EGX is not moving. Um, I can't mm. change when EGX is. So we have to have something out the door, playable in people's hands at EGX. And that makes it very real, you know? Um, it yeah. means, it, it, it can't just be like most of the way there, you know, you're putting this, there's such a, a motivating feeling of, oh my God, people are going to play this on this date that I, I kind of like need that and feed on it, you know? Mm. But yeah, you- Yeah, I- Oh, go ahead. I like deadlines um, for that reason, but uh, A, yeah, they stress me out. And also B, it's very hard to self-impose. Like it's, um, uh, I, I've tried telling myself, you know, it's got to be done with this date, but then when you know it actually doesn't, you can always, you know, um, uh, when something unexpected comes up and you're like, oh God, this, you know, this totally unforeseeable bug is causing some huge issue. Or now that I've built this, I realize it just doesn't work and it needs to be rethought. Mm -hmm. um, that's, uh, makes it very tempting to move the deadline. And what I did do was, because um, I'm very conscious of that uh, scope creep and just sort of always convincing yourself that whatever you're working on is must be done um, forever. I, for certain things, I had to set myself deadlines to make a decision. So I didn't have to get the feature done. I just had to decide for sure, how is mana going to work in this game? And how is cover going to work in this game? Those are two things that were very that were up in the air for ages. I think the last time you played the game before, um, cover wasn't in it, and uh, mana worked very differently to how it does now. Yeah. And for ages, it, it's you probably I don't know if you've experienced this, but like, um, like it's good to delay some decisions. Like it's it's generally good practice. To like don't you know commit to something super rigid early on in a way that you can't get out of later uh, in a way where you've invested loads of work on an assumption without any testing, without any feedback. Um, and now your whole structure of a game is built on some assumptions to discard and, and uh, costs you a lot of work to redo it. So I like to delay decisions, but at a certain point, every decision depends on every other decision. <laughs> and if all of them are up in the air, it becomes this like gridlock situation where like, well, I can't decide this because I don't know how mana works yet. And I can't decide mana because I don't know how cover works yet. And yeah. On and on and on. I can definitely. And so I set myself that. deadlines for like by next week. I am going to. Uh, I will tell you guys how cover works. I will. I'm going to do a prototype of this. I'm going to do a prototype of that. And if I if, um, I mean, really, the decision was just should cover be in the game at all. And so the challenge I set myself was let's try a prototype of how I think it could work. Several different ones actually. Um, and if I haven't come up with anything that's better than just not having cover, <laughs> then we won't have cover if I haven't done it by that date. 
and uh the same thing for mana like the way mana used to work um was uh it wasn't clicking with people people didn't understand it um and so i set myself a, a deadline to try and come up with a new way for mana to work and if i hadn't come up with a better one by then then we'd have to make the old one work but um luckily the the new thing i tried did work out well that is good it, and it's yeah there was definitely <laughs> that's something i struggle with as well we definitely added a lot of new features to labyrinth labyrinth is a game i have allowed to grow considerably um mostly because i haven't had a firm deadline uh imposed by somebody else yet uh i'll talk to you more about that later but um what were we talking about so you changed how mana worked. I remember your first, I, I'm remembering slowly the delta between what I played this weekend and what you showed me, I think it was like a year ago in March was the first time I played this. Uh, yeah, that sounds right. And I, I'm trying to think, what were the things that you locked down initially? What were the, the design decisions you locked down? Definitely grid-based, definitely it's an XCOM style tactics game in that you can, um, I, I divide tactics game into kind of like two types, like, the JRPG ones where you attack in in a sort of a shape on a grid, like a plus shape or a, an area, right? And then like an XCOM style where you uh, shoot within a radius, I guess, would be the way to put it. Um, and you have a kind yeah. of... Yeah. Do, do you want to speak to that? Like how you how you thought about that or, or how you ended up where you did? Yeah, ours is a bit of a hybrid and it's... Um, uh, so this game, it wasn't inspired by Into the Breach originally. It was an idea that I had knocking around before that. But Into the Breach definitely informed a lot of my thinking in terms of um, keeping the battlefield super small and um, focusing a lot on, on pushing people around and, and uh, that kind of stuff. And so there has been a, like a, a tension. The original inspiration for Tactical Breach was, was XCOM. And so the first picture of it in my head was much more like XCOM than, mm -hmm. than what we've ended up with. And what we've ended up with is kind of somewhere in between the two. Um, and so it's it's small maps. It's uh, quite big grid cells. It's very grid-based in a way that XCOM is, is less so. Um, and it is about pushing people around. But at the same time, it's uh, things like line of sight are just done by true line of sight checks. We just cast a ray and actually determine whether you can see someone. It's not based on grid rules. Um, mm. And even things like knockback are actually, we simulate it. So when you're knocked back in the environment, we, we're doing collision checks to find out if you hit something. It's not working on some sort of abstract board game logic in the background. So that things like that can just be as intuitive as possible. So that, you know, if it looks like you should be able to hit someone, then you can. Um, and it's not because they are three spaces over and two spaces down and the rule says that's not valid. Um, it's because you can see them. So you should be able to. Um, yeah. yeah and, and then stuff like... Um, uh, the mana decision actually was was very. Uh, I think I the old system was uh, was inspired partly by this thing that both FTL and the Breach have. One of the things I love about subset games is they they have these very chunky numbers, and everything is maps one to one. So if you remember in FTL, like your your power, your the energy for your ship systems is both the health of the system and the power for it. Um, and uh, lots of these numbers kind of double up. And one of the first abilities we put in Tactical Breach was that really worked was this uh, um, chain shock where you mark out, it's chain lightning, but you choose what targets get hit in what order. And the knockback is in the direction that the bolt hits them. So you can you have a lot of freedom to push people around in, in, in ways that could benefit you and potentially, you know, knock three different people out of windows at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, 
And the idea that that should cost one mana per target was uh, sort of immediately intuitive to me and just felt satisfying and sort of natural and right. Um, and I think that led me down the wrong path for a long time. I was way too attached to that. And that meant the mana system had to, what that means is that three mana is not that much. Three mana is, is you can take out three targets with it in the right situation if you happen to um, get that set up. And that was just made it difficult for anything else to cost one mana. Like, you know, any other ability that costs one mana now uh, can't be very good because that's a third of what it costs to do a good chain shock. Mm -hmm. And so how much mana you got, you were getting mana every turn. Um, you were getting mana. F every class had their own custom rules for how they got mana. Like the, uh, the Navy Seer would get um, mana when other people succeeded because he's a team leader and he kind of like, um, you know, likes to see his team succeed. Mm -hmm. And that was complex. <laughs> and uh, there was a lot of hidden logic going on that people weren't getting. And mana was just very, didn't didn't mean that much. And the system we switched to now is um, that chain shock just costs one mana, no matter how many targets. And in fact, we just set a maximum on the number of targets. And then as you upgrade your character, you can increase that maximum. And then further down the line, we'll probably have some kind of super upgrade for that ability where now you can chain together as many targets as you like, as long as you have mana. But there's some exchange rate there, which which won't be one to one because it can't be because that just doesn't work balance wise with everything else. Uh, but because it's a later game thing, by that point, I think you'll be ready for a bit of complexity and for a bit of figuring out the maths on that. But yeah, that that tempting idea of one to one mapping of, of everything, uh, one thing costs one point and um, it's all nice and clean. It is really satisfying when you can put it off. But I think the Into the Breach guys had this problem on Into the Breach as well. The when the numbers are that small, you're, it's almost like a straight jacket. You sort of have very little room to maneuver and rebalance. Like they can't, if if a weapon into the breach is like thirty percent too good and it does two damage, <laughs> it's like what the hell do you do? Yeah, I mean the this goes back to my favorite thing in Into the Breach was always getting enemies to hit each other, repositioning enemies rather than just necessarily attacking them anyways. And it's also my favorite thing about um, tactical breach wizards is like uh, awesome. manipulating one character to set up an Overwatch and using somebody else to knock like to knock them into the overwatch and the fact that there's yeah. zero mana for that overwatch is great like yeah that's the to me the meat of your game is the interactions between the characters i actually think you take like a really long time to to force people to do that like i would allow people to do that in the tutorial i have i have opinions about your tutorial <laughs> good i'm looking forward to hearing them. um yeah the yeah setting that up so the ability uh, you're talking about is predictive shot. So the Navy Seer, he, his abilities roll around time. And then another character is a Storm Witch and she pushes people around with lightning. And so the, the sort of co-op action you can set up there is that um, Navy Seer's predictive shot sets up a kind of, it's like a limited overwatch zone. It's just, just one line. If anything crosses that line, it gets shot and it's really powerful. Um, and the thing I want you to do, and, and uh, it sounds like you are doing it, uh, is to set set that up and then still on your turn, push someone into it. So rather than waiting for the enemy to cross the line and hoping they do, you engineer the situation and make it happen. And I find that really satisfying to do, but uh, it's very hard to persuade players to do it because it's you're sort of using up, originally you were using up your both characters' actions just to take out one target, which is very inefficient. Um, it didn't do as much damage as it does now. It used to cost mana to set it up as well. Um, 
And at every stage, I just kept making it cheaper and cheaper and more and more powerful. <laughs> and I get more and more perks and incentives to use it. And I think finally it's at the place where it's like, okay, this is actually makes sense to use it. Yeah, I, that makes sense. I, I like it. I think it's really starting to come together. It is really, I will admit, I was hesitant at first because it is really, it's a weird blend. Um, the the mm. mixing, moving around in a grid and attacking some things in a grid and some things, uh, like the, the Overwatch ability you just described. I'm sorry, what did you call it? Um, predictive shot. The predictive shot uh, can go anywhere in a straight line on a grid, right? But the ability yeah. for um, the Storm Witch, when she does a knockback, that's based on a, the vector, like the actual math vector of where you are. And so it's not quite uh, like she shoots in a diagonal and the di you know you always know which diagonal that'll be. You can kind of, it, you, I was surprised at how quickly I could pinpoint it and get it to a place where I understood like, yeah, this is going to push somebody back. This is going to push somebody on a diagonal. Um, yeah, but it it did at well, that's first because like, that was that's like the first like six months of the game was trying to figure out stuff like that of like if it's if it's grid based and the grid cells are big but I also want line of sight to matter uh, like how does pushing someone back at an arbitrary angle work on a big chunky grid where we have to have you end up on a specific grid cell so we we just uh, I spent ages trying to think of a perfect solution to that and there is no perfect solution to it so we ended up just we round it to eight directions, I guess. So like you can be pushed at 45 degrees, which takes you to a diagonal cell. Um, and yeah, it, luckily, I don't think there are any really glaring edge cases there where it looks super wrong. And it, I'm glad to hear that you got the hang of it quickly. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it works. I think it, um, I will skip, I was definitely skeptical the first time I played. because I was like, I don't know how you combine these two sorts of things, but it, it did, like it, it felt really natural. I didn't even really think about it. I just thought like, oh, I guess, awesome. I guess I was dumb for thinking that would be a problem. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good. No, you went dumb. It was definitely a problem. <laughs> I think I'm looking through my notes here. I what did I write? Defenestrate is a good word. I have terrible notes. <laughs> but seriously, defenestrated, I Googled that. Beautiful word. In general, the writing <laughs> the writing in this was really good. I was uh awesome. I, Yeah, you spent some time working on the narrative, right? Mm. This is Yeah, that's that's uh, all new since since last year. Because mm. uh, the last beta we did, the first beta we ever did was um it had dialogue in it, but it was all placeholder and self-referential kind of fourth wall breaking, you know, this is a beta kind of dialogue. Um, mm. And that was in there. We had sort of had to have something in there just to show how the pacing will work. Um, and now uh, it's been one of those slightly uh, frustrating is not the word. One of this, uh, a year where it sort of feels like we've been treading water more than we actually have because we already had a beta of about this length with dialogue in it a year ago. And now we've just got a new beta that, that is the same length and yeah, has dialogue but, in it. But, now it but has this story. dialogue is the actual dialogue. Yeah, and the, 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 missions, the missions correspond to the story that the dialogue is telling and every mission had to be, be rebuilt. Um, and we had to have some kind of first beta to find out, you know, what at what rate can we teach these mechanics without people getting lost and uh, which which mechanics do people like and, uh, you know, what kind of levels feel overwhelming and all that stuff before we start building any. It's not worth trying to build levels that match your story until you know what kind of levels you even want. Yeah, I, I we do the same thing. Like, it, that's similar to how the kind went, and that's definitely how Labrat went. Like, we definitely, um, so we started Labrat working on uh, just figuring out the kinds of puzzles we wanted, figuring out roughly the cadence of the puzzles. And we definitely did try to get a vibe and a feel and a mood, and we definitely, like, tried a couple of different story ideas, but I think a lot of our learning there was just what not to do for the story, how much we can have mm. the narrator speak to you while you're playing the puzzle versus while you're um, outside of the puzzle and so forth. Uh, and they kind of both did have to happen at, 
not at the same time, they, how do I put it? Whatever you start with is the thing you love to redo the most, right? Like, so if you start off doing all the puzzles, yeah. then you're going to write the story and then you're going to go back and redo all the puzzles. Uh, yep. And then you'll probably like go back and do the story again, like each time slightly less. But the first thing is the thing that both guides everything more and is also the thing you're going to have to redo like all the time. Yeah. Um, How tightly coupled are they in, in LabRat? Like if you if you got testing feedback and you realize that like level 12 is actually should be level four, can you just switch those and it'll work or is the story too too tied up? Oh, for certain things that you can definitely do that. Yeah. Um, for, for LabRat, they're not... Uh, how do I put it? Things are more tied to themes. I should show you what we've been working on. I think you'd be pretty surprised. Um, but th there's definitely, there's like sections of the game. So there's the the main mechanics, which we've kind of announced, and you can play through those. And, and there is a definitely a story that goes along with that. And there's a couple of very specific narrative beats that have specific puzzles that are tied to them. But for the most part, we can... For the most part, most of the dialogue is not about the puzzle. Sometimes it is. Sometimes the dialogue is talking about symmetry or something specific, but a lot of that's kind of flavor. So we, we can move those around. We have some flex there. Um, yeah, that's cool. But then there's like, the there's a whole section of like noir puzzles where all the colors out of the world and you're in a film noir and like, no, you can't, <laughs> we can't <laughs> change those puzzles around. We can wiggle a little between the seven puzzles that are there but the first one and the last one have to be the first one and the last one you know um and so there it's hard to explain that one right yeah yeah that was with gunpoint that was the, one of the things i decided early on was um that story and gameplay should be as separate as possible in terms of like that the the conversations with people and narrative events are not going to happen during the level they're going to happen after the level or before mm -hmm. the level in a text dialogue thing that i can just move if i need to and that was i sort of lucked into that that decision because that was definitely the right way to go it's certainly a lot easier to build a game that way um and then heat signature didn't have any um any in-game sort of mid-mission dialogue um uh, and not much pre-written story at all and now breach wizards has a lot of pre-written story and it's very story driven um i've tried to still keep uh, a certain amount of separation between gameplay and story but now it's much more finely interleaved because within a mission each room is a different level and between rooms you are stacking up outside the door and your characters chat then and that was um something i wanted to do partly because uh, I liked the idea of like two like special forces operatives like chatting about their lives just before they breach a room, <laughs> like just having you know really off-topic uh, conversations, and then getting on with the serious business. Um, and then also once it was in there, I realized like wow, this is fantastic for just letting me get way more story in than I planned to. Like just have way more character development, relationship development between two people. Um, they can talk about the mission, or they can talk about not the mission. And since each mission is is like four or five levels, uh, that's four or five conversations that I can have that, you know, there's no burden for them to flow into each other, but they can do if they want them to. Um, and that's just turned out to be like a super flexible system, uh, maybe even too temptingly good in that I'm like, wow, I can just write a shitload here. <laughs> and obviously I don't want to, I don't want it to slow the game down. You feel like, oh God, I got to click through another one of these. Well, uh, I, you hopefully. Have a, for one thing, you have a skip button, which I didn't in kind. So if anybody, if it's ever too much, right. somebody can just skip it, you know? Um, uh, so I think that yeah. works. Uh, have you ever yeah, considered? Yeah, that's a, that's a sort of, um, that's a hard and fast rule for me is any 
any narrative stuff I put in my games, you ha have to be able to skip it. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, you could just click really quickly in kind, but uh, for you, because you're, because there is so much more writing though, uh, I think that skip button, I, some people will lean on that. There's just some people who don't care about story, Yeah, you know? Yeah, that's fine. But um, have you ever considered doing VO or, or actually like, I was thinking when I was playing this, I was yeah. like, shit, this might be cool with VO. I think about it sometimes, um, but always the sticking point is just the kind of the production side of it where I would need to, you know, just arranging VO sessions, uh, casting. Uh, it's a, it seems like it's a shitload of work and uh, I don't have a lot of space for extra work. It also, it's something that I couldn't not be involved in. Like, it's not something where I could just like hire somebody to handle all of that. I would have to at least have oversight of it. And I have so many jobs already <laughs> and I just can't kind of take on yeah. the extra thing. I also think if you don't do it, if it's not brilliant, it's worse than not doing it at all. Um, I think text is is good and uh, the wrong voice acting is bad and the right voice acting is better than text for sure. But um, that's only if you get everything right and uh, it's expensive and it's, it, it's, it's not so much that it slows things down. Um, on the writing side, or maybe it does, but it's it's more like it's a kind of a log jam, or, a, or it feels like it would be a spanner in the works where things are trying to everything else that's trying to move at its own pace gets held up by oh god, we've got to have this locked by this date, or we can't change it now because it's it's already been recorded. Yeah, that kind of inflexibility really scares me. Yeah, I mean, it's something I guess I'm a there's two things I'm like a little bit less afraid of that because I started out in AAA where there was just like there will be content lock and there will be script lock and then you know you. you pencils down because the programmers are porting the game to all the consoles and you know what I mean? And so I was kind of used to that structure and the idea of like content lock means you're done, but it doesn't mean the game's done for another couple months. Because basically what this means is like you finish the writing, you finish the game, and then you, Tom Francis, walk, uh, move into a completely different role for a while um, where af only after all the writing is done and you've done scratch, you get to do VO stuff. Um, and I, I do, when I went indie, I definitely thought like you did that that uh, it would be prohibitively expensive to do VO, um, and I and then you did it yourself. <laughs> yeah, I mean that that was actually kind of awkward. So the reason, the only reason I did VO was because Matt Burns, the uh, he's the writer I'm working with. He's the uh, writer that made a, a game called Eliza that I just fucking love. Um, yeah, I know Matt. I see him in the audience. Hey Matt. Oh hey, <laughs> hey man, what's up? Uh, he he convinced me to do it. Uh, basically, he was like, this will be cheaper than you think, and we'll get this, uh, and he recommended a voice actress that I knew, and I was like, you know what, yeah, we'll do that, we'll hire this voice actress, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, this is going to be a small game anyway. And then that was before I realized the scope that the game was going to be, and I kept doing the scratch VO, <laughs> and I realized, because at the time we were, we were negotiating with this voice actress, and we were going to have her come in to do the voice, and I think this was in, like, June of last year. We were supposed to have her come in and do the VO back when the game was supposed to be this tiny one hour thing. And I was like, oh, it's not going to be a tiny one hour thing. We need to cancel that. Also, what if I just do the VO? And I, <laughs> I for a while, I, I was like, am I? There, there's this thing that game developers do where they're like, yeah, that's good enough. You know, <laughs> they think their own voice is great. I don't. I hate hearing my own voice. Every time I play the game, I have to hear my own voice. <laughs> and that's awful. So the, it, it bothered me so much, I had to like pitch it up. Like it's pitched up a lot in game, so it doesn't quite sound like me. Yeah. Um, but I do actually- I, I think it works great. Yeah, I, I went to Matt and I was like, I, I think this works. And he was the one that was like, yeah, okay, we'll do this. This is fun. Uh, and that was, 
Because I was totally willing for him to just be like, nah, nah, Gwen, you gotta, this is awful. Because you know, the last thing you want to do to a writer, <laughs> you don't want to like, like, I, you know, a writer writes words and they, they want a certain performance. And it's, honestly, I've seen what a good voice actor can do. You know, like I know what, yeah. how much the performance matters, and and I didn't want to be, you know, on my high horse doing it. I was pretty self conscious. I remember the hearing thing. that. I remember hearing that um, George Clooney when he did Oh Brother Where Art Thou, he just sort of assumed that that he was a good singer and that he should sing all the songs, and then he actually did it. And people had to take him aside and say, "Mate, you can't sing." <laughs> um, you need people like that that can do that for you, though. You know, you have to have somebody that yeah. that'll do the Emperor's No Clothes. Like Gwen, you can't be the voice actor. I know you think this is working, but it's really not. And I kept waiting for somebody to do that. And nobody did that yet so far. So so we're, we might actually ship with it. So we'll see. Awesome. Yeah, I think you should. Yeah. I, I don't think that's an option for me. I don't think I can voice all of the wizards. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are there is a, a dynamic cast of characters. But I will say it was, it was a bit cheaper than I expected. Um, I do think... It is definitely something where you, you would have to have people on your team do like the scratch video. Uh, get it to a certain point and then take it to voice actors. It is, I'm not saying it's like easy, but man, it adds so much to a game. Um, yeah, I think I'd like to do it for like a smaller project someday, like as a test, you know, see see what it's like to write for an actor because I've never done that. And I have had moments doing writing recently um, where I th like this game, Breach Wizards compared to Gunpoint has a lot more, um, I think it has a wider range of, of like emotions going on that characters are feeling and a, and a lot more different relationships. Gunpoint was very sort of, um, uh, what's the word, like solipsistic. It was just one main character and no one else existed outside of their relationship to him. Um, whereas this has many characters. It's a, kind of an ensemble cast and um, they all have different relationships with each other. And there are, emotion, there are, there are moments when somebody is getting, you know, uh, uh, they're raising their voice to, to somebody else or they're getting... Um, uh, they're feeling very stressed and they're really sort of letting it pour out. And there are definitely moments writing that where like, I'm trying to phrase it in a way where the in the reader's mind, it's going to escalate in intensity and they're reading the later lines in a, in a more urgent voice and thinking, shit, it'd be real nice if I could just ask an actor to just play it with more intensity. <laughs> like that would help. Yeah, I can, it, it adds something, but you're right. Like if it was a bad voice acting job, like it, if it was done poorly, it would really make the game suffer. I think one yeah. of the things that surprised me is for if you do uh, voice acting, it changes where you put the story to because you can have people talk while, how do I put it? You can have voice acting yeah, while, while you're playing. playing as opposed to in between yeah. the puzzles, you know? Um, and I, I'm on the fence about how important that is. It's definitely for a game like what you're doing where I, I think you kind of want to be engrossed in the puzzle as soon as you're into it. Maybe it, uh, it does it bother you that I keep calling them puzzles? What would you call them? No, um, definitely this early on, it's very puzzly. Um, and we're still toying around with how how much more freeform we want to go, because puzzles are quite safe in that that we can establish, you know, uh, what you can and can't do and, and make sure that there is an interesting solution and make sure that there's multiple solutions. Um, when it's more freeform, there's always a chance a player, you know, does something bad on turn one or turn two that they don't realize is bad until turn four or turn five and then they're really they've given themselves an impossible situation uh, without realizing it and i feel very worried about that because our game is all about being able to experiment and being able to try things out we let you rewind anything you do within one turn for free infinitely um mm -hmm. and part of why uh, the only so commitments 
Yeah, the only commitment that's that you make is when you commit your turn. And so when you can lock something in and uh, it can go out of uh, and get out of hand later, that's a worrying thing. Because if you're, if you're looking at the, the mission and thinking, maybe this just isn't possible because I screwed it up earlier and I've got to restart the whole thing, that's probably going to be a bad feeling. So puzzly stuff is good where we we're giving you very short-term objectives, like seal all the doors, you know, um, by turn two, um, stuff like that. Uh, I do want, what we want to do is is have moments where you discover like, oh my God, wait, I can do this. And I can, if I push my own person into this situation, they will be in a position to do this and I'll be able to pull that off. And so that's kind of what we're doing with, um, I don't know if you saw the confidence goals uh, on mm -hmm. the later missions where, you have your main objective is just clear all the enemies, seal all the doors, no no deadline, do it whenever uh, you can. And then the confidence goals would be things like one of them is to take out every enemy, leave no enemies at conscious at the end of turn one. Which there's two missions on which we ask you to do that as a as an optional extra, much more difficult goal. It's it's much much more difficult than than solving the mission. And they are ones that this is a, a nice thing it happened with Gunpoint too actually, where I build the level just as a level, just a bit, as a thing that you can complete or not complete. And then only after it's built to go back and think, what is, what's like a more challenging way to do this? And with Gunpoint, that was a case of like, is it possible to solve these levels without hurting anybody? And for most of them it was, or if it wasn't, it was a small change to make it possible. Um, and for Breach Wizards, it's looking at things like that. Like what is, what is a really improbable thing that I could try and do here and see if I can find a way to do it. And if I can, then I can challenge you to do it. Um, and that is there to make sure that you know there are multiple different ways to to solve a mission like if you know th there's an obvious way to do it but if a confidence goal is telling you you could clear all of these people in one turn i hopefully that is going to make people um realize like oh there's there's a lot more to this in terms of the other things i could pull off and i think that's going to be where the kind of emergent side of things has to live is in the optional extra stuff because we can't really require you Sort of you know the nature of inspiration of of that moment of like oh my god could i do this crazy thing mm -hmm. um really clashes with us forcing you to do that because uh yeah if it's something if we're going to force you to do it then we have to be sure every single person will think of it and if every single person will think of it it isn't so much a flash of inspiration that feels personal and and you know you want you to feel like a genius yeah i mean this does go back uh to you for a linear your game is linear i, I mean is it going to stay linear kind of like it is yeah, yeah yeah so because you go from puzzle to puzzle you can't ever have a, a single puzzle that's extremely difficult but what you can do is have a puzzle that's easy with optional goals that are very hard um or yeah, yeah. so i mean i think it works i think it works really well i i did all the confidence goals tom uh without any effort so i don't know what you're going on about with this uh, <laughs> being hot. i remember it's good to hear. what was it i, I messaged so you gonna... while i was playing and i was like tom this is this tutorial is so boring like, it's, <laughs> like i've been playing too many puzzle games lately uh look you've played the game before so you have a, a head start on that stuff and yeah, that's uh, true. it's also a lot of the early stuff is is primarily narrative. It's, you know, we want to make sure while we're checking, you understand the controls and, and what a turn is and, and what foreseeing and rewinding is. That was a, a big sticking point in the first beta is just getting people to understand, like, people didn't actually know when a turn had ended and when a new one had begun, mm -hmm. uh, which was uh, just because we were super, we were overwhelming them with with these different, like, you know, 
actions you can predict and actions you can't predict and uh, the unpredicted enemy turn and the, the normal enemy turn and all this other stuff without A, it was complex and B, it wasn't visible. A lot of that stuff was kind of behind the scenes. Um, and so we had to make that stuff uh, more streamlined, more visible, and then also just just design some levels that the end of the, the first mission is, um, uh, it forces you to both foresee things, like click the predict button and, and mm -hmm. see how it plays out, and to rewind after doing that to make sure you know you can do that. Like you can, uh, Into the Breach, uh, I love it. Um, and they did an amazing job with the UI in that game to, to try and show how everything will play out. Um, and I knew, a, I really liked that certainty and, and having a lot of foreknowledge, and I knew, already knew I wanted to let you rewind, so everything has to be deterministic and and let you um, uh, see the consequences of your actions. And I was very keen to just like skip all of the hard work that Subset did to make that amazing prediction UI, because I know it was a huge challenge for them. And I can see, even in the final result, although it works, you can see, fuck, this is a lot of information they're trying to present. And you know, this tile is on fire, and it's got smoke, and three things are targeting it. And it's different enemies, and you need to know which enemies are targeting it, and which direction it's coming from, and all this stuff. And I was like, boy, if there's any way we can skip that, that would be great. And so letting you actually see things play out, like there's just a button called foresee and you just click that and, and you watch it all play out. So you get to things like the order in which things are going to attack. And if someone's going to push somebody and that's going to block a later thing, you mm -hmm. can just watch that happen. And then and then you can rewind and make a different action instead to um, to influence that. That's kind of the, the motive behind that. And we needed to make sure that you know how to do that. So there's a sort of, there's a narrative reason why um, we Are, we give you a hard choice and, and we want you to to watch it play out one way then go back and watch it play out the other way. Are we allowed to talk about that? <laughs> uh I don't think we should. A because it's a mild spoiler for the intro to the game and also B it's going to change I think. Uh, okay. so it would be uh story story specifics um probably like, in general I've been very open with with development you know I like to show what I'm working on and I'm totally happy to show a terrible version of a level or a terrible version of a mechanic and then if we fix it later, no, nobody's, um, it doesn't bother anybody that they saw the terrible version or that there ever was a terrible version. But I think story is different. You don't want to see a sort of half-baked version of the story and then the the uh, a later version, um, you know, that contradicts it and trying to separate in your memory, like which things, wait, which things about this character do I know from like early videos that um, are now no longer true mm -hmm. versus uh, what I've seen in the game itself. You know, it's funny you brought up Into the Breach earlier and how they messaged everything really well. But I, every time I talk to somebody about the game, it's always surprising to me how much people didn't pick up on certain things. Like um, hmm. the specifically enemies spawn until you reach a certain number of enemies. So killing enemies is not the point um, because they'll just respawn until they reach a certain number, right? Uh, and, I don't think I knew that. <laughs> yeah, and like that's if you're going to get deep into the strategy of the game, it's important to understand that that this isn't a game about necessarily killing the enemies. In fact, the most powerful way to beat the game is to reposition them, freeze them, and that sort of thing. Um, and so, like, and then the fact that so many people didn't realize that is a, uh, I, I think perhaps something that should have been surfaced more in the UI or in a tutorial. Because I, I remember thinking back, and I the only reason I knew that was because somebody told me, and then I realized it. Uh, and I remember thinking back, mm. and I don't think that was ever tutorialized. And I think a lot of people don't realize how good that game is because they didn't get that fact. Yeah, I really fell hard for it. Um, I was playing it uh, obsessively whilst finishing Heat Signature, actually. Um, mm. I was out at Valve with uh, my programmer, John Window, and we were we were sort of co-working from their offices. And I had, a, I think it must have been a pre-release version of Into the Breach, and I was... Um, uh, 
I had that on my laptop while I was working on on heat signature on my desktop and uh, uh, getting distracted. And uh, yeah, I I got super super into it. And I for me, I I prefer it to FTL. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but I hear it didn't sell as well as FTL. Um, and I yeah, I've, I was surprised sometimes hearing friends who didn't click with it and the reasons why they didn't click with it. There was a sort of some people felt I had a kind of rigidity to it, like it was. Um, you know, there's, there's only sort of a certain thing you can do, and that's a risk with with breach wizards. But it's also it's partly why I didn't try and make breach wizards more dynamic. It, that I was happy to just like for the certainly for the early turns and the early levels, just give you a, a, a pre made puzzle where we know there's a good solution to it, and um, we're confident you can find it, so that it has a kind of broader appeal. Like there are more more people can click with it, and then still stack on the the extra depth and the the challenges mm-hmm. sounds like we need to do better with the challenges and, and have even more complicated <laughs> ones for people well, like you go in for... i might be i might be a <laughs> we'll problem at this point i might just be too deep into playing puzzles i, I just play too many difficult ones now we're yeah. like the bar is raised but... we definitely have a, a difference in in puzzle skill level because um lab rat it got brutally hard for me i, I couldn't finish yeah the, we had the to last, uh, we had to tone it down papers. yeah that's been toned. <laughs> it's been toned down a bit <laughs> um cool but do, does anybody in the audience have questions? There's quite a few of you. You can hit the raise your hand button and ask questions at this point. Because um, I'm running out of things to ask. <laughs> well, I guess I'm not. We could just keep going forever. <laughs> well, I'd be interested in Matt's thoughts on the on the voice acting thing if he uh, feels ready to speak up. He might just be lurking. Let's see if he's here. I'll yeah. invite him and see if he gets it. But... um. Yeah, I don't. Oh, hey. Hey. Hi. <laughs> hey, Matt. <laughs> Hello. Nice, nice to uh, talk to you. Nice. Yeah, you too. Um, specifically with regard to voice acting, yeah, I think uh, it it is a little bit uh, um, tricky, but uh, the the best thing to do, I think, is just try it on a project, and then you'll uh, you'll learn pretty pretty quickly how like what you can get away with and and what you can't, and about how much it costs and the effort uh, required. I, I always tr- want to encourage indie developers to look into voice acting because I think it's often not as much of a big deal as it seems at first. I think I think if you haven't done it before, it seems like this really big deal. Especially, it's like you know, how do I find the actors and like how do I how do I direct them and so on. Um, but if you if you dive in and and, and try it, I think it it becomes quite uh, it becomes quite manageable. Actually, and then and then it's something that you know that you can do, and I so I generally recommend it as as a thing to try. Yeah, awesome. Something I I wondered about something that appeals to me about it is is the idea of um, uh, you know getting something back from the actor uh, about the role because when you sort of ask somebody to to inhabit that character, I feel like they would have their own input on it, and um, you know. Uh, I know with like long-running TV series, this is a, a very prominent thing where the character, the actor, gets to know the character, you know, as well as the writer does, and in some cases becomes their sort of champion and wants to, you know, push for them to have more agency or, or uh, push back against things that don't feel right for that character. Have you ever had that kind of relationship? Yeah, it happens a little bit on on games, although, you know, a lot of a lot of actors who are used to working on games are used to sticking to the script pretty uh, closely. I think on on AAA games, especially, like usually the the order of the day is to is to say things pr- pretty much exactly as they are, 
in the script, but you can tell uh, you can tell them like let's let's improvise a little bit, or you know the script is not a hundred percent. And if you enable them to do that, they will, and it's uh, it's great sometimes. You know there are some ad libs and some other things that that really add to characters that are things that you didn't think of yourself. It's a little bit like working with a with an artist as well. If you've had this experience, right? You you say, well, this character is like this and this, and the artist comes back and is like, well, here's what they would wear, right? That sort yeah. of expresses this character. And it's like, wow, I never really thought about what they were wearing, but you kind of like added to this character, you know? Yeah, exactly. My uh, my artist, John Roberts, is is incredible in general and, and specifically for that, because I will give him uh, you know, a brief for a scene or something. Uh, there's one where you meet um, Navy Sears' mother and you go to her house and uh, uh, he did such an amazing job of making her place like cozy and just rich with all these details about um, the history of, of, of uh, the two of them and uh, Navy Sears' dad, who is not in the picture. And uh, yeah, that's a, that's a really fun back and forth we've had with every character, you know, uh, as soon as I get art back from John, He's added detail that's that's you know goes beyond what um, what I specified, and that will inspire me to then change the voice of the character or or, or to add that detail, work it into their story. Um, like every now and then, there's um, a thing where like oh that doesn't fit because there's you know there's a reason this character you know is in conflict with with that detail of their backstory, but most of the time it's just stuff that like oh yeah I didn't even think of that because um, he has to get into the character in a way that I don't always have to. And, in my jobs yeah i mean it, there's something just so special about being surprised by your own game or something that's booting up the editor and seeing something you didn't expect in your own game is just so awesome it, regardless of where yeah. it comes from if it's an artist like uh, designers do it too every now and then lucas checks something in and i uh, uh and he's like play this and it i just had no idea you could do that with this game oh <laughs> it's beautiful i love that Yeah, I'm hoping to to have a little bit of that with the puzzles we already did with the, the last beta when once it was public or not public but we did a sort of closed beta people were were showing me clips of their solutions to levels that just went way beyond what I knew was possible so I think the the confidence goals and breach results will be inspired by that partly like I right now they're they're the sort of um oldest things I know are possible like I you know the most ambitious things I can pull off, but like I say, I'm not actually a brilliant puzzle game player. So once it gets in the hands of people who are, I'll see what they do and and possibly adapt the challenges for that. Yeah, that's true too. What the fans give to your game and the the kind of inspiration you draw from the fans is huge. Um. Mm. Going back to that character thing, um, the even though I don't work with voice actors, um, it's a it's a test I do on my on character ideas uh, that they need to be people that an actor would be excited to play. So it's a way of sort of cutting past this sort of, you know, uh, is this a strong female character or a weak female character uh, that can lapse into making, uh, you know, every female character incredibly uh, have loads of agency and, and um, be super aggressive or, or um, uh, kind of fall into a, a, a trope that then gets copied across. And really, you don't want every female character to be strong. You don't want every character of any kind to be to be strong. You want them to be different. And the test for like, is this you know giving someone flaws, giving them insecurities, have, giving them limits on their agency, putting them in helpless situations and stuff. The test for that for me is would an actor be excited to play it? Like if they um, if it still feels like a juicy role with a lot going on, where they would have a lot to you know think about and um, 
uh, and bring to it like subtlety and nuance and and an in interiority to that character, then it's probably passing the bar. Jeez, do you do um do you do the writing and all the design? Do you do the programming as well? Uh, no, I work with a programmer, John Winder, uh, on Heat Signature and Breach Wizards. Uh, Heat Signature, I started programming by myself and then brought John on in the last year. And then Breach Wizards, John's been on from the very start and he's been a much more um, uh, taking the lead on that side of things because um, partly because working with him on Heat Signature was so good and partly because this is in Unity and I, I had worked in it a little bit before, but he's much more experienced with it than I am. So he's um, able to uh, take those jobs on. And I, I must admit, it's a, it's a potentially dangerous uh, slope <laughs> when you have a great programmer because uh, increasingly I, I sh shift all the hard tasks to him. And then, of course, I never learn how to do hard tasks. So then more and more tasks become hard and become things I need to shift to him <laughs> because I didn't uh, get over the hump of, you know, understanding, you know, well, that's... Uh, co-routines and things like that it's good to start to lead on people at some point you know like you gotta yeah yeah like they, you can't go no one person can go to the moon it's better to be able to delegate things I, <laughs> i'm trying i struggle to delegate you can ask matt sorry matt like <laughs> <laughs> like i i'm still like reading the script i i like i was like okay matt's gonna write everything and i'm not gonna write and then that turned into okay matt we're gonna write this together and then i was like okay i'll put somebody else like a narrative scripter in between me and Matt, and then I'll step back from the script, and I swear to God, I still read it. Like I have a problem. Um, I, I find it. That's, I think that's natural. Yeah, maybe I. You don't seem to have a problem giving up the programming, so. No, that's. Um, I definitely there. There are certain areas of the programming where I need to be like in its guts, if that's not too a grosser way to put it. Yeah. But like the the ability system, it was a real. Uh, tough challenge to figure out what an ability is from a from a uh, software engineering point of view. Like, what kind of entity is it in Unity's workings? Is it a scriptable object? Is it uh, a, a C sharp class or whatever? And the complexities of that were very difficult to figure out. But I kind of insisted on doing it myself and and coming up with a solution that made sense to me because there's you can do it any one of twenty different ways. But I needed it to make sense to me because the abilities are what I'm going to be working with a lot because that's the kind of the most game designy thing is is what can your wizards do? What can the enemies do? They both use the same ability system. Um, if I can, if I'm fluent in that system, then I can do a lot of design work without needing to touch other parts of the of the programming. Exactly. And so, so it's not yeah, even stuff like that. Yeah, control. it's not even writing your own tools at that point. It's at some point the gameplay programming is the design too. Like it's, uh, unless you have a very large team and you are actually decoupling them, or do you actually think of yeah. this as more you're, you're creating your tools? Yeah, it's, it's definitely designed because you, you're picking limits and it's kind of similar to that gridlock thing I was talking about before, where if ever, if nothing is decided, then nothing can be built. Um, and, and at some point you have to commit. And so with abilities, it was very much like, all right, there are certain ways these abilities can't vary and there are certain ways that they can, um, and putting in those those limits and that framework is is limiting on the design of the game. Um, one thing that we did was was a, a sort of architecture decision that that has and will continue to influence the design is that the abilities are have AI on them. This is might be a bit kind of technical. I apologize if it, if it uh, start, starts making sense, but rather than like okay, this is a tracker enemy and a tracker enemy has this AI. Um, 
Instead, the ability they use, which tracks you with a laser sight and shoots you at the end of your turn, that ability has AI logic on it of here is a good place to use this ability. Like that's when you when you want to ask the question, where should a tracker stand? The tracker asks the tracker ability, where should I stand? Because then there are other types of enemies that use that use abilities that are basically the same. And so the AI lives on on the ability they're using. And if they have multiple abilities, then they can run through all their abilities and ask each one of them, you know, where do you think I should stand? Where do you think I should stand? Where do you think I should stand? And depending on which is the um, uh, which ability gets priority, that's that's determines where they stand. So it's a weird quirk that like the enemies in in breach users aren't really doing any thinking of their own. They're, it's their abilities that are doing all the deciding. Yeah, I think we did something. We didn't do it for the reasons you described, but on Bioshock Infinite, for instance, a lot of the logic was in the gun because we wanted <laughs> to for for memory reasons. Because like if a level didn't if a section of the game did not have the rifle, then we don't want to load in all the rifle animations and all the right. art assets that go with the rifle. And at the time for like it just wouldn't fit on console unless we refactored everything so that the the guns actually had head control rather than um I mean this was more important this was less important for the AI because the AI were like the rifleman was always a rifleman as far as like the the NPCs that you're shooting. Um, it was more important for like the player gun and the player stuff. But so I'm kind of like wrapping my mind around it, but I can see how that would make sense for like uh, you're fighting a, a combatant that could have one of an array of abilities. Yeah, I can see it. That's that sounds very symbolic that in you know, a first person shooter, the <laughs> everything is is held within the gun. <laughs> the logic is in the gun. Yeah. So did you, uh, when I last played Lab Rat, um, was that all written by you, Gwen, or was were you, was Matt already on board? Oh, when when did you play it? It was probably the uh, the beta oh, that we had. Um, I think that was a collaboration between me and Matt. Oh, Matt, how do you? What would you think? Yeah, I think that was that was the product of of you and me working together. I would say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Matt. Is it just... becoming more narrative driven? Yeah. <laughs> the, the narrative uh, narrative driven implies the narrative happened first there's going to be a great deal more narrative and in narrative in my opinion is how do i put it i don't necessarily look at narrative as just like the words that people say i look at narrative as more of the when you walk into a room there the room is still um and there is a cigarette uh and a, a rapid you know, you can see blood from where somebody had started a cigarette. So you know, they were here soon and there's blood trail and somebody was dragged out of the room. Like, I like that kind of thing. Environmental storytelling. Storytelling that doesn't necessarily have words. You know what yeah. I mean? Um, and so when yeah, I say narrative... I by, by, that me by that measure, the game has a lot more narrative than it used to, right? I think when you mm. first described this game to me, Gwen, it was, it was going to be a really small kind of almost like a side project yeah sorry and it's, it's <laughs> you don't need to apologize i'm just like that that is how it started and it just kind of went went from there right mm -hmm. yeah and you've yeah. you and lucas both poor lucas was on mr Turd's wild ride really like he just i was like yeah we're gonna make this game we're gonna make it really quickly lucas was prototyping puzzles with me and he just every time i'm like lucas i think we need to make a bigger game i think we should do this this and this he's like all right all i've ever wanted to do is that that and that let's go uh, <laughs> yeah you two are you two have been really great um but and yeah i think there will be a lot more writing i think there's uh matt's gonna be busy for the next month or so i definitely ghosted on you for like three or four months there though well i i had to go back to the um so so the way this happened was i i needed to establish the vibe and the feel and i knew i needed help and i needed a writer 
uh, and I brought on Matt, and he's so easy to work with. The two of us uh, just kind of jammed on on the writing for quite a while in a in a Word doc on Google Docs, and then it. I'm trying to remember the point where I realized, okay, it's time to really scope up the game. And I had to, I, I kind of like ghosted Matt for a while and I went to work with Lucas and we just built out every puzzle in the game from the beginning to the end and made about an eight hour game. Um, and I, I kind of had like the rough themes and what we were exploring in each area and the rough story arc figured out there. And now I've just recently, I think like about a month ago, I, I'm like, Matt, are you still around? I need to bring you back because it's time to actually <laughs> write the words now. Uh, and, and Matt's just been cool the whole time. It's been great. Awesome. I will say, I don't actually know how to work with other writers. Uh, the only, this is a huge flaw I have is like, if I, if I'm working with an artist or a designer, like I'll never, ever touch Lucas's work. I'll take a screenshot of it. I'll paint over it. I'll be like, I think you, you should move this here and here's why, or I'll describe why a puzzle's bad. Or if I'm working with an artist, even if I can, you've, uh, quickly change their model. I won't. Like I'll, I'll take a screenshot, I'll describe to them how to change it, even if it takes longer. I'll explain why I want something changed to be to go from A to B uh, so that they learn why. And out of like out of respect, you never touch somebody else's work. But with writing, I, I don't know how to like I don't know how to figure out what I want for writing unless I write it. And so so much of the writing is like I go into the Word doc and I, I just rewrite Matt's words and I'm like, what if it's more like this? And I feel like an asshole. Like, I, I just don't feel like this is how you're supposed to direct, but I don't know how else to do it because I've never done it before. Yeah, I, I mean, that's pretty common. I, I think I think maybe rule number one of, of working on writing together with someone is is you can't really be precious about um, your specific words. You know, if, if, if you really are precious about very specific words and phrases, um, you know, go ahead and be a novelist if you want to, right? Like, like this, writing in... in formats like these i think is uh, usually has to be pretty collaborative and even if you're just doing it handling it yourself you still have to like um make sure players understand it and be willing to change things right in reaction to play tests or things like that so um it's it's just part of the pro process i think hey what's up <laughs> hey carla <laughs> how's it going i was just like y'all are talking about writing environmental storytelling and like uh and potential you know trying to keep uh it sounds like you're talking about trying to keep tone uh together when it comes to having multiple writers and stuff like that and i'm like hey what if i put my or in <laughs> that'd be great <laughs> yeah, for, for the podcast can you introduce who you are real quick Hey, um, I'm Carlos Manja. Um, I worked on uh, Gone Home and Tacoma and previously like Bioshock 2 and some stuff like that. And now I'm working on something unannounced. Um, and But I've been like a narrative designer slash uh, editor basically for a bunch of years now. And I feel like there aren't too many uh, people who do that kind of work in like at least in the indie space that I have seen. Uh, but like it kind of sounds uh Gwen like you might want someone else who has to keep the tone but maybe that is something you wouldn't want to give up uh it was hard I actually did hire somebody else to do that um so uh how do I put this I I brought on Ian Bond he was actually the he worked with me on on Bioshock well he worked in the original Bioshock um mm. and he helped me with some of the writing in kind he was more like an editor for kind um, and he's a person that very much values narrative storytelling and so forth. He's also a person that with a programming background that very much can do, uh, 
has no problem doing the implementation in engine because so much, how do I put it? A lot of the jokes in LabRat are jokes that are things like polls. It's making fun of, uh, uh, the, the, there's a lot of jokes on the way we present data and that sort of thing. And so I, I did, uh, I, would, I thought it'd be very beneficial to have somebody who understood the narrative and also understood how to uh, tell a joke visually and could technically script it up and do the narrative scripting side of things. Um, I see. So it's kind of meta in a lot of cases. Yeah. And because we're, we're a, yes. And because we're a very, very small team, I just needed somebody who could both like, I, I I wanted his help with the narrative scripting, and also he kind of took over like driving the overall narrative, mostly because he would bother me uh, every day and just be like, "This doesn't make any sense," like, and he would just point out like every plot hole in the game from the beginning to the end. He's like, "Have you figured this out yet?" Uh, until eventually I broke down and was like, "No, I haven't." And then he's like, "I have an idea." It's like, "All right, Jesus." So Ian, Ian has forced himself onto this project as well. And so now Matt's dealing with both of us, which has got to be wonderful for Matt, really. But uh, That's fine. It's <laughs> <laughs> wow. No, it's, it's, it's still not as many people as if you work on a AAA game, right? Like if you're, if you're a writer on a AAA game, you have like so many customers. It's, uh, it's, it's ridiculous. So I think That's this is true. still, I, it's still quite... Uh, quite manageable and i think you you both have a very clear idea of like what what this game is and where it should go and like what the what the overall attitude is which um which is really nice yeah definitely how do you guys how do you guys feel about um like when gameplay and narrative are intention and kind of which one uh, gets priority um cuz i know like for me doing both writing and design I get, since I am both people, I'm allowed to completely overrule the writer on me <laughs> and just say like, look, mate, you're completely subservient to the gameplay stuff. That's going to come first. So like Breach was, as I said, uh, the, the sort of free rewind thing was a core goal of the gameplay. And uh, then character stuff kind of flowed from that. So one of the main characters has a uh, decision anxiety, basically can't commit to, to decisions. And it's partly because he can see how everyone will play out. So the narrative just kind of led out from the gameplay thing. Uh, that's very easy to do when you're both people and there's no there's no jostling for for you know agency or space but i wondered how you guys handle that oh it's been hard on labrat like there's a lot of the initial gauntlet so labrat has a, a core group of puzzles that you play and then there's these different puzzles with different themes and as you go on it, it they become very specific like there was a gauntlet that made fun of assassin's creed um, and I had a lot of jokes about Assassin's Creed in there. We never named the game, but you know, you would jump from a very high place and you're and, and you know, uh, it was very clear what we were doing. Um, but the puzzles didn't feel like Assassin's Creed. And uh, Ian was just like, that was why I said that he was just be like, this doesn't feel like Assassin's Creed. Um, and I remember we, I eventually I was like, I agree. Like Assassin's Creed is about either killing people or at least let's let's add some ledge climbing mechanics. And so I would add, uh, we went through a week where I, I just scripted up a whole bunch of new mechanics. And I think this is it. You know what? I've added ledge climbing. You can you can move from here to here. Lucas, let's make some puzzles where you go around on ledges. And every now and Lucas is amazing, but there's certain mechanics that just don't blend together or don't work. And Lucas was just like, he couldn't make good puzzles with them. They just weren't interesting. They weren't funny or, or they, did, they didn't capture the feeling. Um, well, you, I, I think we either had puzzles that captured the feeling, but they weren't interesting puzzles, or we had interesting puzzles, but they didn't capture the feeling. And in the end, we just had to cut that section. 
Um, and there's been a oh sorry (laughs) yeah there's been a couple of things like that like there was a fishing mini game I struggled with that for three weeks trying to invent a fishing a Sokoban fishing mini game (laughs) Uh, and like like we we tried I I could show you the different (laughs) prototypes and they were just like the theme worked but we could not find the puzzles and in the end we cut them like the the solution for me has just been I guess we just fucking cut this um, until (laughs) until everybody's happy like that's yeah. a difficult position to be in to be like we got a gag and we got to make a puzzle for the gag <laughs> like that's hard already oh, let yeah. alone something that's very specific like those things like whew, that is that is not the it's not the order i particularly am excited about doing things in personally um has do you have an example where it's worked I mean, all, all the examples that are in game, which I can't spoil. <laughs> like, there, there are definitely examples where it's worked. I think the, um, I was surprised at how quickly the, the noir section came together. So there's this whole noir section and it feels and looks like film noir. And Lucas, I was like, Lucas, it's a mystery game. He's like, got it. And it, it took us a little bit to just figure out how do you make, we, we removed all the color from the world and it's like, how do you make interesting puzzles? And he said, what if we, I just need people to be able to see the colors of the wind condition. And then it was a mystery of like each of the puzzles is a mystery of okay you can't tell what color the lasers are but you need to electrocute this block to do the right colors on each side and then put it on the wind condition but you can't t- you just kind of have to figure it out deduce it using the mechanics you know what i mean oh and there's God. so you actually wow. it looks black and white but they the lasers do have real colors it, yes it looks Behaves as if oh, oh my god, god. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like figure out what the colors are that's brilliant yeah. that's- Kind of a blast, and there, there's just a there's a couple of <laughs> there's like nine of these in the game basically, and I don't want to spoil them all, but I'll tell you that one because I think I've streamed that one at one point. Um, so it's it, fun. So sometimes they come together and sometimes they don't, and a lot of the lost time of the project is just like they didn't come together, and it's heartbreaking. Mm. Or early on, just getting um, it's been fun to watch Lucas grow as a designer over the course of this project, and like. To, to see to stretch him and see if he could pull off some of this stuff because I remember the early tank levels I would have uh, I was like the one of the first experiments like this was I made a, a little tank and I was like Lucas our game it's just very dry and uh, it's a puzzle game and that's fine but like I want this little exciting moment you're riding it there's just gonna be this for no reason as a gag we're, we're just gonna give you a tank and you drive it around and you shoot things and he went and he took this <laughs> tank and he made a series of insanely difficult puzzles with it uh, and it did not feel like you were shooting things like you were driving a tank and powerful it just felt like really difficult puzzles and finally i had to like i think that was the i stripped down the mechanics a little bit more tied the player so you couldn't leave the tank and just made like no look you move like this and things go boom and i think after like the after that something had clicked in his like for him and and he kept uh pushing i don't like at some point he surpassed me in the ability to do this sort of thing and it, he went from like, I don't see it, to now he's better than me. Now he's coming up with shit I wouldn't have anticipated. <laughs> like he made Tetris. Awesome. Oh, we had to cut that one too. We had to cut Tetris. <laughs> Turns oh. out Tetris is extremely tedious. Um, like te- Tetris was not, like the movement mechanics were just too tedious. The puzzles were interesting. And the theme, obviously you look at it, it's Tetris. But there weren't really, like how many jokes can you make about Tetris? It actually wasn't that good. Uh, that one got cut too. There was a, like a process I had to go through um, to understand some mechanic stuff. Like when you talk about the tank and and having like 
being given a tank and then having really difficult puzzles to do was, you know, sort of theme mechanics mismatch. A thing I was really resistant to for ages was sort of uninteresting. I, I had got that that bug from, you know, Sid Meier and everyone else about every decision should be interesting. And that was preventing me from figuring out the cover system because the cover system is like, does it cost you an action to take cover or not? Because if it does, then you almost never want to do it because you'd rather shoot people with your actions. Uh, and if it doesn't, then why isn't it just automatic? So we tried an automatic version, and you know, if you if you can take cover, you just automatically do because why would you ever not? Mm -hmm. And it absolutely sucked. It was it was baffling, <laughs> like even to me. And I just wrote the rules, and then I tried it, and like, nope, this is completely bizarre. Actually, I wrote the rules, and then um, John Winder uh, actually implemented it, <laughs> and then mm -hmm. I, but he did exactly what I asked him to do. And, and when I played it, I was like, this is incredibly weird and unintuitive. And the version we settled on is cover is free to use. And it's not automatic. You have to click the button to do it. And there's almost never a reason not to do it if you can. Uh, so it's a totally uninteresting decision. There isn't anything to weigh up, really, but you just do mm -hmm. it. And that feels right. That feels really good. Like it, it's taking cover is a very like, you know, spec ops kind of thing to do. It it's, fits with the theme and clicking the button kind of feels good. And when you're in danger and you press the take cover button, and it gets you out of danger. It just kind of feels nice. And it's not interesting, but it's actually valuable to have that. Yeah. I'm gonna surely. Oh, sorry. No, you go ahead. Mm, I was just gonna say, surely, like every decision being an interesting decision breaks down really fast. Um, <laughs> I mean, that would. Yeah, I, feel I guess like it's like when you're considering like a what the decision was trying to make partly was do we even have cover? And so when it's mm. like we're going to bolt on this mechanic, this is whole mechanic we haven't built yet. When you're evaluating what you're going to add to your game, and obviously you have way more ideas than you have time to implement one that doesn't seem to add any interesting decisions seems like a bad fit but I see. uh when you can't what do if, it it feels weird yeah. that you can't do it and then well yeah i mean can do it totally it's i mean it seems like there's also actions you can take that are tools that allow you to get to the interesting decisions and or you know to give texture to those decisions uh surely not yeah every action needs to be that fraught god i hope not <laughs> <laughs> yeah no it doesn't and then of course you you also just get some some fun stuff like through serendipity like it turns out mm -hmm. you know pretty soon we're going to get to a point in the game where there's a character that's much tougher than the other ones and so them taking cover could cause the enemies to target a another of your team who is less uh has less health and can't take cover and so then there is a decision, like, do you mm. want to take the hit on the one who, who can afford to take it or um, who, who you actually want to take the shot? That's very into Ooh. the breach right there. <laughs> That's, I will say. Yeah, sort of, although um, this is actually a, it's a decision we had to make uh, differently to them, which is can enemies change their mind about what they're doing while you're taking your turn? Because in Into the Bridge, what? they can't, right? They're, they commit completely. Mm -hmm. And I copied that at first. I was like, yes, let's do that. They can't ever change their minds. And then you push them around and they, they shoot each other. But actually, for us, it's worked out better to have them there. If they're aiming at somebody and that person is hidden, then they can aim at somebody else. They can't move on your turn or anything, but they can. their turn is spent you know, aiming their gun at whoever they can aim their gun at. And they will do their best job they can of that. That actually ended up leading to more interesting stuff for us than, than having them commit. Yeah, and it fits your fiction. the 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 main character is a guy that can kind of see the future ish, right? Yeah, yeah. that's true. Like, that becomes meaningless fast if the future is always fixed. That's interesting. Can I tell you? I, I, this is a total tangent. 
you you have this thing where there's the button at the bottom right of the screen to go on, but you, it's not a button that you click mm. or press and hold. It's a button that you click and then you drag over. Like, what is mm. the... <laughs> and I recognized uh, it because you tweeted about it. What was the yeah. what's going on there? It's an experiment because um, basically ending your turn accidentally is very bad, obviously. Uh, so a single click is is too much. I don't really like the confirmation step that Into the Breach has. So that you click the button and then a, a di dialog box pops up and you've got to click yes on that if you if you choose to have the confirmation step on, on that, which is optional. And then press and hold is is what I use in Slay the Spire to to prevent that. You know, that's the feature they offer in Slay the Spire, and I do use it. Uh, but when a lot of the turns are super easy, I just get bored holding it. I don't want it to be limited on time. I, like if I'm certain, I want to be certain instantaneously. Um, but if uh, I've misclicked, I don't want anything to happen. So click and drag was um, was my compromise there. Where if you if you are certain, you know what you're doing and you mean to do it. It's a particular gesture you do that is instant. But if you misclick, it's never going to uh, commit your turn accidentally. Okay. But it's very much an experiment, and it's I'm going to ask people what they think of it and whether it works. Uh, for now, a friend of mine played on. Um, she only uses a trackpad, doesn't have a mouse at all, and it's a nightmare to use on trackpads. So <laughs> we added a, a fallback where you can double click it at least. I see. Interesting. It was. Def I could feel this. I was like, this is this is unique. I don't know if I like it or hate it. It's just new. <laughs> Hi, Trungli. I uh, would you like to ask a question? Oh, oh, yeah, thank you. Um, so I had a question for you, Tom. Um, what do you think when making a strategy game uh, like Into the Breach or in, or Tentacle Breach Wizards? Um, what do you think are some of the ramifications or, I guess, pros and cons of having this idea that you can uh, see what the enemy is going to do next or basically preview moves or undo moves, which I feel sometimes end up being the same thing? Yeah. Yeah, our, our rewind is definitely it's it's a way of approaching the concept of a preview. We're, we kind of also have a preview as well, but um, uh, yeah, that, I agree that they're, they're basically equivalent in a lot of ways. Um, they so it's I think it's a probably qualifies as a trend now, right? Because it's a big thing in Into the Breach. It's a big thing in Slay the Spire. Um, yeah, and a lot of games are are doing this, and um, uh, and it. For me, it solves a lot of. I think it takes away the lowest lows of something like XCOM. You know, XCOM uh, is a very high stakes game, and that's its whole thing. Is it's it's you know you're at the edge of your seat, and it has moments of absolute horrific disaster. <laughs> um, and when your team gets wiped out by uh, enemies sort of coming out of nowhere and all piling on in a way that you didn't realize they could, and you thought you'd mitigated the risk, but you were wrong. It's a huge spike of of some kind of emotion. <laughs> what kind of emotion depends on on your personality, I think. Um, and at its best, at XCOM, you know, has moments of tragedy and moments of triumph, and they're both very very intense. And that's what's good about the game. I love that game. Um, but at its worst, the thing I really can't tolerate, uh, or I absolutely do tolerate it. But the thing I absolutely didn't want to have on our own game is when that heartbreak comes from a misunderstanding of a mechanic, or it comes from a UI problem, like I didn't know that was lava, or I didn't know that guy could shoot me, or I thought if I moved here, I would be able to hack this objective, which would end the mission and save us all. And it turns out I can't hack it from there because of, I don't know, there's some line of sight thing or some range thing or some rule that isn't clear to me. And so for me, there, there are enough of those, there are loads of those in XCOM. I hit those all the time in XCOM. Um, 
and uh, I have to save scum to get around it because it's just too mm. brutal to to lose someone you really care about to a, a UI problem. Uh, but even into the, into the breach, which I think is best in class at at, at telling you what is going to happen, even in that, I have moments where I'm like, "What? I didn't know that was going to happen. I didn't see the fucking you know there was a, a an attack highlight, but it was on top of a lava tile, and those two things look kind of similar." And every single time I'm wrong about what would happen into the breach, it was a real low. It was really like devastating, especially because they made you care so much. Um, they made you care. So for me, uh, sorry, we'll go back go to ahead. that. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say that. They made you care, and uh, yeah, if you uh, if you can't see what's going to happen, then then that's the risk you run. And when you do allow the player to see what's going to happen, have have perfect foreknowledge, um, that eliminates that frustration, but it introduces a new problem, which is this the straitjacket I talked about before, where you're sort of locked in, and some people it rubbed people the wrong way and um, uh, and into the breach for some people. It didn't for me, obviously. Um, but yeah, it's it's a risk that you, when the the outcomes are so set in stone and, and foreseeable, you never get to feel like you have a chance of success when you don't. Uh, whereas XCOM, you know, you get to sort of commit your turn thinking maybe I survive, and then you get completely shredded. And that's uh, that's kind of good on both counts. You kind of you have the moment of of desperation and hope, and then you have the moment of tragedy. But you kind of knew it was coming, so it's not that that galling. Whereas Into the Breach, I know something they struggled with was. Um, how do you ever get the player to, when they're in an impossible situation, how do you get them to ever even click end turn? Because you're t like, they, you'll be telling them you're going to lose the game when you click end turn. <laughs> what are they mm -hmm. supposed to do then? Click end turn and, and bring on their own failure? Or do they just go to the menu at that point and abandon the campaign, both of which feel really bad? And I know that's that's why they had the chance of survival on the buildings. Like there's a, even if the enemy hits it, there's a chance it might not go down. So that there's always a reason to press end turn on that. I don't think we're going to have that issue because we don't push you to the point of campaign ending death at any point. Like there's no way to fail the campaign. You can only fail a, an individual mission. Uh, and then if you do, you have to restart it. We're not, we're not a roguelike and we're not a, a 25 hour dynamic campaign like XCOM. Uh, so we're, the stakes are just much lower throughout in, in Breach Wizards. So hopefully that, um, uh, that'll avoid that kind of, uh, yeah, like straight jacket, certain doom situation. All right, thank you. Yeah, that was really insightful. Yeah. Thanks. Um, what were you going to say, Gwen? Oh, shoot, I forgot. Oh, we were talking about, you said that you were <laughs> connected to the characters in Into the Breach, I was going to say. That's like the one thing I didn't feel about Into the Breach, whereas I did it like in XCOM. Oh, no, sorry. Yeah, I was talking about XCOM. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was supposed to say, there's something about when you see the characters' traits, and those are actual human traits, the same thing in Darkest Dungeon, same thing to to a greater degree. Anytime there's like a human trait that also impacts gameplay, that's like catnip for me. I love that. I love tactics <laughs> games that do that so much. Um, yeah, there was something they did really nicely in, in the War of the Chosen expansion where characters could have bonds between them and those had gameplay effects. Um, and obviously, um, uh, I know Fire Emblem goes much bigger on this kind of thing, mm. but... Um, it led to just a really lovely moment where, because I'd also named all of my my characters after um, folks on Twitter and friends of mine, um, seeing them develop friendships, like people who don't know each other online um, uh, are friends in my XCOM game. And then uh, I remember having a moment where one of my characters um, had panicked. I think she'd taken a hit and it was too much and her willpower had broken and she was panicking. And because she had a bond with another character, I could have that character move out to her and just like stand next to her and that calms her panic because they have this bond like they, they have um uh 
uh, that ability between them. And then that settled down the first character and then I could save them both. And it was a really nice moment of like, you know, personal traits affecting gameplay. Yeah, I love that. The, those are the most, like that, that's a key thing that I love about XCOM. It's something I like about Darkest Dungeon. It's something I like about a lot of the like, uh, the Japanese tactics games tend to do that a lot as well. Um, or just certain, any RPG where there's like human traits that are on your, your roster. Uh, and that that has a gameplay effect. Oh man, I love it when that, that works and it it's pulled off well. Um, but yeah, it is, uh, we're probably reaching the end here. We've probably got time for like one more question if anybody else has a question. We have a panel of two writers and the legendary Tom Francis. Who's <laughs> <coughs> afraid to be called legendary. So if anybody else... <laughs> Squirming, which is the word I'd use. <laughs> Sorry, Tom, you're legendary. I'm just going to have to back her up on this. <laughs> oh, God. Just mostly to make you squirm, I guess. <laughs> that's, the real, that's what we're trying to do here today. Squirming off camera. <laughs> All right. Does, the, does anybody else have a question they'd like to ask? All right. Well, this has been the first episode of season two of The Dialogue Box. This has been Gwen Frey and Tom Francis, Matt Burns, and Kara. What's your last name? Carla Smanja. Carla Smanja. I have an irritating name. No, it's all good. It's nice to meet you, Carla. I'm, gl I'm really glad you <laughs> nice showed up today. Nice to meet you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Letting me show up arbitrarily. Hey, whatever. That's what this is. This is the new thing. Um, <laughs> and this has been the dialogue box. <laughs>